Welcome to Sustainable Startups, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. In this episode, we're going to talk about imposter syndrome and give some updates on our businesses. I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrap SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. And I'm Rick. I'm the founder of Leg Up Ventures, which owns and operates software companies that empower underdogs. Cool. So what's up this week, Rick? Well, uh, I've got an attaboy. Yeah. Yeah. Last week, we, uh, we were at 50 members, which was the goal. For June, sorry, we've crossed uh, fifty members of what? Of oh, sorry. Uh, so, Group Current, one of my ventures under Leg Up, uh, manages a group called Pando Labs. And Pando Labs, we launched it in June to invite only members. It's a nonprofit that we converted to member based groups. And we, our goal for June, I told you last week was fifty. We ended up with almost a hundred members. So two wow. x our goal. Cool. So now we're we're trying to double that in July, but I feel, I'm feeling really good about it. Yeah. That's awesome. Did you do something since last time we talked to like accelerate it or is it just, you kind of did an initial launch and it's still trickling in. It's all just initial launch trickling in. We, what we didn't expect was we, we assumed a, a, a lower conversion rate of some of the contacts we had made. And we had a, about twice the conversion rate on people we had developed relationships with than uh, we expected. Cool. So when you say you hope to hope to double that, at some point you have to start doing something other than just like sitting around letting the signups roll in, right? Oh, so you're asking me how we're going to double it? <laughs> um, so we uh, we don't know yet know yet. One, we built some um, virality. Virality might be the right word, but we built some growth loops into the membership. So one thing is members uh, have the ability to bring guests to events. So we think that that's going to be a great source for new members. And then there's a whole gr- uh, larger group. So we only invited um, people to to join from a group of about 200 people. Um, and and we have a, a larger community uh, audience of about 1,500 uh, followers. And mm-hmm. so by just re- opening it up to that larger group to apply and the net, the network of the, the uh, referral effect of allowing people to bring guests, we think will be enough to get to the 200. And what size do you say? Like, I feel like the tech industry has this problem of everyone's interested in something when it's doubling every so often. And then eventually you've hit a size, especially with what you're doing, because it's like a Park City specific, you know, association. You must hit a ceiling where it's like it's not even worth trying to grow anymore. We think that's 200 uh, and, and then it's all about adding partners and member and member value, mm-hmm. but we don't know yet. We're, 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 we're definitely surprised. We have a lot of people outside of park city who want to be involved in the park city community from Salt Lake, from Provo, all across Utah that are joining as members because they want to be in park city. Mm, so it's a much larger group than, than just people who reside in park city. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, cool. What about you? What's going on with you? Uh, yeah, so I had a kind of big week. We, we've we been working for a long time on this new, major new redesign of Less Knowing CRM. It, it's been, I think, six years since our last really significant one. Um, and this week we did our first f- uh, four beta testers. We did phone calls with them and let them in to kind of start using the app for the first time. Well, that's exciting. What, yeah. What's the initial feedback? <laughs> um, so it started out exactly like the worst way possible. I'm not. I'm not kidding when I say. Okay, so the format we're doing, we sent out a survey. 
a bunch of people opted in to want to do the beta. I picked like eight people that I thought looked good, emailed them. Four of them responded and booked this call with me. And I said, basically, I get to watch you use the software for the first 30 minutes because it's one thing to, for someone to give you feedback. It's another thing entirely to see them actually use it. Um, so I was, we were just screen sharing. So I flip this person's account over to the new design. And I'm t- I don't even think it took a full second before she was just like, oh, no, no, no. She hated it. <laughs> so, Why she- so what did you do? Uh, I mean, we still had the whole call. We went through the whole thing. It, uh, there were some encouraging aspects of it. First of all, she was like, if you change any, like, I like the current version so much. If you change anything, it doesn't matter what. I'm not going to like it. And I was like, you're a weird person to volunteer to do a beta test, but okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and by the end of the call, I had kind of explained some things and like why we did it. And she was kind of coming around. She was like, I'm still not going to like this, but it went from like, I'm going to quit to this is going to be a minor nuisance for me. Um so I learned I didn't learn a lot about the product because like I said she was not receptive to the product changing but I learned a whole lot about how to communicate with those types of people like how to explain why we did it so that they hopefully the next round they don't freak out. Yeah, in other words they have to be able to commit to learning the new experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they need a reason to do that. Right. Well, the, the thing that really ended up being the secret was I had to explain, we want this to work well on mobile and our current site can't because of how it's designed. It's not a technical limitation. It's a design limitation. When I said that, she was kind of like, oh, I don't love that, but okay, I get that. Um, so now I know that the next three calls I did, I kind of led with that. And I don't know, I, I don't think any of them would have had a negative reaction anyway, but it certainly helped them contextualize why we're doing this. So that was valuable. Um, and then, yeah, the, the next, the second person loved it. They were just nothing bad, entirely good. I'm excited about it. And then the next two people were like, this is a net positive, but I'm not like, it's going to be a pain learning a new design, but I know once I do, I'll be happier with the new one. So I'm pretty happy with That's like overall. three very different people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's, we kind of got the whole spectrum there, but if I, I hope not 25% of people hate it, but if say 10% of people hate it and the other 90 are like the other three people we talked to, I'll, I'll be happy with that. Well, is there anything I can do to help you with that? Um, I don't know. Cross your fingers real hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I appreciate the offer. I, I think we're good. Like we, we've been working on this for a long time. We've been using it internally. I, I'm not worried that it's, it, it's not worse. Like it's definitely better. So people will see that. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, cool. So maybe we should uh, go into the deep dive for today. So we're talking about imposter syndrome. Do you want to uh, kind of explain what you had in mind here? Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if you know this. I left uh, People Keep, which I and different forums ran for 11 years. Uh, for most of the time, I was the leader of the company under various titles, most recently CEO. And as I re- reflected on my time there after I left, that was in October. So it's been about six months. That's been almost nine months now. I One of the big reflections I had was sometimes how I treated people. Sometimes I was super impatient with people and put certain immediate business goals over really trying to make people feel good about what we were doing or where we're going. 
And I, I regret those moments because it was so short-sighted, right? And so as I look back and analyze why did I do that, I think a lot of a lot of those situations were fear-based. I was scared of missing a short-term goal or I was scared of of what I want to talk to you today about feeling like I might be found out as a fraud um, as a CEO. And so I want to talk to you about this because one, I, I wonder if you ever feel this way in some way. And I guess mm-hmm. imposter syndrome could be defined as a fear of being found out as a fraud. But I would go a step further and say, do you ever feel like a fraud at, at, in your job or catch yourself making decisions, not based on like what's right, but out of fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, okay. So I, I definitely feel like a fraud all the time. I, I'm of the opinion, this is like not at all backed by anything, but the only people who aren't are like sociopaths. Like I, everyone I've ever talked to, no matter how accomplished they are, everyone's like, Oh, I don't, I don't belong here. Everyone's smarter than me and all that. I, I definitely feel that way. Um, just, just constantly. Yeah. <laughs> it's surprising to me to hear that you did so much. Oh yeah. Constantly. And it's like the, I think, I think it caused me to work a lot more than mm-hmm. I needed to. Uh, it, that's the fear of failure. Uh, um, it caused me to st- stress and worry about things that were outside of my control unproductively. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it caused me in certain situations to make the wrong decision. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so the, the reason I was surprised to hear that is because on the surface, maybe more than anyone I've ever met, you seem like the classic CEO type. Like you're calling me a sociopath. Well, no, no, no. I, I'm saying all CEOs yeah, probably I, I, feel I, imposter syndrome, but what I mean is, okay, you're, you're a type A personality. Do you agree with that? Uh, define a type A personality? Like you, uh, well, yeah, maybe I don't have the best definition, but I, I interpret that to mean like you aren't afraid of conflict. You kind of say what you mean. You know, you're just kind of a, a, a person who's in control and likes being in control. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. Say. And you like, maybe maybe this was me just not seeing what was beneath the surface, but you work really hard. You read a million books. You network. You you make connections. All to be honest, half my imposter syndrome comes from looking at you and being like, oh no, that's what a CEO looks like. I'm not doing any of that stuff. And how do you, but, but the real question isn't necessarily, I guess the interesting thing to me isn't to discuss whether people feel this way, because I think everyone does. Mm -hmm. It's, I think what's scary is, I I think what I, what I reflected on was not necessarily that I had this, it's how I dealt with it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so um, I think that let's assume for purposes of this part of the conversation that everyone has some yeah. feeling of imposter syndrome or are being fraud. And that's a fear thing. Yeah. Um, what I think in certain situations I did was let that dominate my, my emotion. Mm-hmm. And that, that could have resulted in me not uh, being thoughtful about how I was communicating with someone in a, in a moment or, making a decision that was uh, fear-based versus opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and I, th- I think a lot of, I think maybe a lot of decisions, I hypothesize that maybe a lot of decisions leaders make 
they make out of fear, maybe because if they feel like an imposter and maybe those are the decisions that they regret the most. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. Um, I think I have a very different reaction to it than you do. I, I, I think that using kind of generic words like fear and regretting a decision, I, I think those still apply, but like it takes a very different form for me. But yeah, definitely. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the decisions I've like the worst decisions that I've made. The number one worst one was certainly made out of fear, although I'm not sure it's a fear that was rooted in feeling like an imposter. And that was that I had an employee that I needed to fire. Um, it was obvious to me that I did, but I was, I was just like, oh, I'll make it work, this or that. Um, and I just waited for him to quit. And he did eventually, th- thankfully, because it could have dragged on forever. But uh, that, that by far, when I look back at myself as a leader, that's, that's my weakest moment ever. It was fear-based. I don't know if it was, I don't think it was imposter syndrome-based for me. What was the fear? Well, first of all, I just hate I hate confrontation. Um, I guess th- this is maybe a little different from imposter syndrome. Part of it is I, I took a big risk hiring him, and I convinced him to take a big risk accepting the offer. And it, you know, you're admitting you failed is is one of the things. Um, now, I'm normally not too afraid of failure, but when it's like really impacting another person's livelihood or something like that, it, the pressure is really high. And I think I was just afraid to say I'm putting an end to this. I don't know. <laughs> I've definitely had other moments, though, where I, the thing is, I think my reaction to imposter syndrome is to remove all of the things that I feel unconfident about. Um, and so it's less, I think you maybe, it sounds like you were saying you kind of lash out almost. I do the opposite. I withdraw and say, oh, well, I don't feel, I don't think I'm good enough of a leader to do this thing. I'm just not going to do it. The, the company doesn't do that. That's not in our core competency. Interesting. So, yeah, maybe. It kind of gets into fight or flight. Mm-hmm. You, I have a fight, a, uh, a fight response, mm-hmm. or you have a flight response. Yeah, I was actually th- when you were talking, I was thinking exactly that. You're one of those animals that like gets real violent when they're backed into a corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I uh, when I I've, I've been under the uh, anesthesia for surgeries before, mm-hmm. and I have to actually I w- I've learned this. Um, I always forget because I don't get surgeries very often, but um, I do know this now. Before I go under, I have to tell them to rem- when they when they bring me out of the anesthesia, they have to tie me down because wow. I come out and I've come out swinging, <laughs> which isn't great when you're getting a shoulder surgery. Yeah. Seriously. Wow. I didn't even know that was a thing, but yeah, I mean, I don't want to like, you probably come out going. Boo-hoo-hoo-hoo. Yeah. I'm no, probably, <laughs> probably like crying about something awkward. I did in third grade. <laughs> uh, but yeah, okay. I, I, so I think we're saying like we experience the same things. We have very different reactions to them. Yeah, but do you regret that reaction? I guess do you do you feel like you're missing out on? Are, are you fleeing from something and and making decisions for the company that are fear based, flight based, mm-hmm. that aren't the right decisions? Uh, this may be taking this in a direction you didn't intend for it to go, but I've been asking myself this question because basically what what the situation I'm in now is I've built a company that I think fits my leadership style really well it it's it's what I want and if anyone else looked at it they'd say well it's it's not what it should be like it's not as big as it could be it's not as profitable as it could be and all that stuff so I think it's like objectively I've made bad decisions but I I have been asking myself is that like is that a problem maybe I'm fine with the fact that I kind of built this weird environment that I feel safe in. And I think the employees here also feel safe in. 
That sounds great. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if you looked at it, we could be we could be way bigger than we are. You know, in that sense, they were bad decisions. You know, there are a lot of times yeah, I so haven't taken a risk when I could have, or something like that. What about earlier on when you were more focused on being a growth, a high growth company? Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like that in those situations you were putting yourselves in a, putting yourself in a more uncomfortable position? Yeah. Okay. That's interesting because definitely what I did, just for a little background. So we started out fully bootstrapped, just me and my brother. That part was natural. It's like, I'm just coding. No problem. Then we turned into, okay, it's time to start hiring people. And we were growing really fast. And yeah, that's probably when, that's the main part of my life when my imposter syndrome was caused by you, where I was saying like, oh man, think of all the things Rick would be doing here. He'd be going out and talking to investors. He'd be like making contacts. He'd be recruiting. And yeah, probably at that moment, I was like, I need to start acting like Rick. I need to start doing the things you would have done. Or I mean, not just, you know, I'm using you as kind of like a boogeyman here. But yeah, I probably made a lot of decisions that were not consistent with my values because I was trying to pretend to be someone I wasn't. I think that is what I, that you're hitting on what I want to talk about. I think that when I look at back what I regret, it's, it's when imposter, imposter syndrome I allowed it to affect how I behaved in a way that wasn't consistent with the person I want to be. In other mm -hmm. words, my values. Mm -hmm. So maybe, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, so that is, I think that is the point. And it sounds like what you've done is you, you, you may have experienced that. So you know what I'm talking about, but you've actually, instead of changing you, you've actually conformed the business to allow you to be in a safe place so that you can be the person you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's and cool. I, I don't want to, I, I mean, I think probably I still need to push myself. I don't want to use this as an excuse to say, oh, you know, just be lazy, you know, don't work hard, all any of that. But yeah, the word, I'd never thought of it this way that when you say, call it imposter syndrome, what that means kind of is that you think you're in a room full of people who are different from you and that you need to be like them to fit in, right? That's kind of what it's saying. And it's just saying like, A, those other people probably aren't the, these amazing people that you think they are. And B, you don't have to conform anyway. Yeah. And it's also, uh, I think it's also, I think any such, I think imposter syndrome is, let me, let me try to state this. So see if we can agree on what we, have, mm -hmm. we probably should take a step back and say, what is imposter syndrome and what do mm -hmm. we want to define it for purposes of this conversation? Um, I, I would define it as, feeling like who you are is not good enough for who you are supposed to be in mm -hmm. any situation. Mm -hmm. yeah, who you I, believe you are supposed to be. I like that. I, let me uh, just quick disclaimer. My girlfriend's the psychologist. She hates it when people go around like making pop science definitions. So let's acknowledge this is we're co-opting the term imposter syndrome to mean whatever we want it to. And But I agree with that definition. What, what should we call this? Let's call it something different if it's not imposter syndrome. No, I, I mean, everybody's co-opting it. Like at this point, I don't okay. think anyone's using it correctly. So <laughs> I think this is fine. I just want to acknowledge this is not like a scientific definition here. No, this is Rick and Tyler's, uh, how we choose to interpret mm -hmm. imposter syndrome. Yeah. For so purposes you, of this discussion. Right. So you you said it's when the, the person you are isn't as good as the person you think you need to be to achieve your goals, basically. In a situation. In a, in a certain situation. Yeah. Yeah. I buy that. And I, th I think that matches with the little anecdote I told about the during the high growth mode. I didn't feel any imposter syndrome before that because I thought in that situation, what I need to be is a, a product person 
writing some code and that's what I was doing. Um, it's that I thought who I needed to be changed when my situation changed. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about you because I'm, I'm real interested in this because you have a business background. I think a lot of more businessy stuff comes naturally to you and the role you were filling was CEO. So like, it seems like you are more naturally aligned with the role. What were the ways in which who you are varied from what you thought you needed to be? So I think one, I think one, uh, one particular example is I'm a very much a customer experience first person, mm-hmm. uh, which, which puts me more, uh, I, as a leader. And if, if I, when I start companies, it, the dollars don't, aren't the number one thing for me early on. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to like, I don't want to try to grow something and get people's money until I can promise them a cust- and deliver on a customer experience that they're not going to regret. And that takes time. Like when you're starting a company, that takes time to build. And it ta- you know you, you kind of see this when you when you when you are a product company or a customer experience company, uh, you focus on, a lot of times it takes longer to reach those big growths those those big hockey stick growths. Mm-hmm. But uh, but when they come, they're much steeper, right? And so, you know, you have slow growth, slow growth, slow growth. And I'm, I'm very much the person who is willing to delay gratification on the revenue, uh, to have the, uh, best product, best customer experience, and then have that asset that I unleash on the world and then the competition later in a company. I, that was not, those were not my partners and investors, uh, mentality. Yeah. So when I was in the boardroom, and I was reporting on numbers, who they wanted me to be was a sales-driven CEO. They wanted me to focus on sales. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, I, and I did not. I wanted to focus on customer experience and sales later. So one could argue, though, that that's not imposter syndrome in the sense like you actually weren't the person they wanted you to be. This wasn't some made-up problem in your head. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny to me because as you were talking, the what you're talking about is the delayed gratification. That's the whole point of raising money. If you were to talk to Paul Graham or you know a Silicon Valley investor, they'd be like, "Of course, that's what you're supposed to do." So it's so funny that the thing you feel naturally doing is what a venture backed CEO is supposed to do. That's just not what the situation called for, right there. Well, I in my opinion, the situation did call for it. Um, and that's how I would have run the company if I controlled it. <laughs> but the, that was, I had, I, the CEO that the board wanted me to be, and that I felt pressure to be was not the CEO I wanted to be, mm-hmm. nor was it the CEO I was, I thought was best for the success of their own capital. Yeah. And, and I don't know, I guess I felt extreme pressure, uh, uh to hit short-term goals um, from that, from that situation, which led me, you know, to kind of be two different people. I, I'm starting to realize, like, I was actually probably Jekyll and Hyde a lot of times, mm-hmm. and very confusing to my team members when I would, uh, you know, represent the CEO the board wanted in out of one mouth, side of my mouth, and then represent what I thought was best on the other side of the mouth and never actually taking the time to sit, you know, draw a line and say, I can't be the CEO 
this is this is not for me unless you can align around this different strategy and who I am. Yeah, but I, I never did that. I, so, so yeah, this sounds real interesting, and I, I don't want to like tr- invalidate the point of this the the topic here. That doesn't sound like imposter syndrome to me. This was it? not made well. So you, you said earlier fear that failure? F- fear based decision making is is at the core, and I agree that that it sounds like you were making fear based decisions, but this was not some internal mistake. The, the thing about imposter syndrome, because I, I mentor a lot of younger people, interns, and this coding fellowship thing we have, and everyone feels this way. And my advice to them is always like, I'm oversimplifying it here, but like, get over it. Like, everybody feels this way. You're not an imposter. There's not a problem. It's all in your head. But in, in your case, there was a problem and it wasn't in your head. Like, there was actually a real con- conflict between who you were and what the board wanted you to be. Yeah. And I guess I was, so what that caused me to do is violate some of my values. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, why did I do that? Cause I was scared of, uh, of, of losing the respect of the board. I was scared of losing my job in some situations, losing, losing the opportunity to build what I was building. Mm-hmm. Um, and that caused, yeah, I, I guess it's really fear, fear of, as a CEO, when you are are threatened personally, mm-hmm. um, whether that's for you know whatever we want to call it, that's what I'm. I guess that's really what I'm talking about is when you feel threatened personally, as an individual, as a leader, it can cause you to make some really bad decisions. Yeah, that you regret. And I, I don't know. I guess I wonder how many lead, how many CEOs and entrepreneurs out there feel like they're they sometimes are making those decisions out of fear. Yeah, well I mean I can say just observing you know I'm not like super connected to a bunch of different startups and stuff but I I'd say maybe more than the typical person I I talk to other founders and stuff like that and yeah across the board you see people it's always the case I think to an outsider decisions seem pretty clear like you're making you're doing this thing for the wrong reason basically. Um but yeah you see this all the time that people have some kind of uh, either they're attached to the business more than they should be, or they're indebted to investors uh, or whatever that, yeah, they're, they're, they, they're desperate and they're making bad decisions as a result of that. Which is bad for them and for the company, right? Yeah. Although uh, an investor might say, if it wasn't going to work, I want it, I want it to fail quickly. So this is I'm, every single podcast we do, Rick, I'm going to bring it back to bootstrapping, which is <laughs> if you're bootstrapped, you have the luxury of saying, well, no, I'm, I'm going to do this slower. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to like push for those sales right away. You may not have that option when you have investors and maybe it's not bad for them if you fail quickly. Yeah, but f- th- this fear of failure would cause may cause you to make decisions that actually extend the life of the company when failing would be better. Okay, that's fa- do, do you think that happened for you? Absolutely. The company would have failed if you hadn't done that stuff? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's a whole different layer on top of this then. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting, yeah. In this particular, that's in my case, but I would, I would say that what I'm interested in discussing is, is this okay to feel... I think there's two parts of it. One... Do we accept that this is just the reality of being a leader, having moments of fear? Mm-hmm. And do we accept that act as a leader, when you act and make decisions out of fear, it's oftentimes the wrong decision? Mm-hmm. 
And then uh, third, so I think we're agreed on those two things. And then yeah, third, I have a comment on the first one, but yeah, go ahead. Oh, then the, okay. Well, what's the comment on the first one? Uh, yes, I think I think it's natural for people to experience that fear, and I would even go so far as to say, like, what it means to be a leader, or at least one of the primary responsibilities of a leader, is to shield everyone else from that, because an organization where everyone is experiencing that fear is dysfunctional, and a leader is kind of opting in to saying, "I'm going to experience this, and uh, hopefully protect everyone else from having to feel that too." Okay, I, I agree with that. Okay. Anyway, I, that's then, not to disagree yeah. with anything you're saying, but you know, it's an extension. I, I, mm-hmm. and I, and I, I think it's yes. Uh, you, you, you own the, you are the, the dam for fear entering the organization, and that can take a toll, mm-hmm. right? And it's real. It means that you are going to be scared sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and you actually have some very important, um, you know, barriers. You have limitations on how you can express that fear to begin with. I think a lot of leaders, myself included, sometimes make decisions. Maybe they don't express the fear directly, but they make decisions based on that fear. Decisions that if they, when they look back on, they will regret Mm -hmm. and realize that there was a better decision to be made. That's bad. Like having fear isn't bad. Making decisions based on fear is bad, I think. So, okay, I I get where you're going, what, what you're saying here, but in nature, things like fear and pain exist to to provide you with better decision making, right? Like if if you're running too much and your knee starts to hurt, that's your body telling you, "Hey, stop running," and you should react to that. Or if you're afraid, it's like evolution saying people who were afraid in this situation ran away and lived, and the people who weren't afraid got eaten by a bear. Do you think just like evolution is not helping here, and and we've we've evolved, we've grown beyond that, or are there situations where fear is helpful? Listen, we're, for purpose of this conversation, I don't think we're talking about basic needs that mm-hmm. are you know our our cave cavemen relatives are, you know, <laughs> you know, d- dealing with, right? And, yeah. And, and so this is, this is a civil, civilized, um, we have basic needs met. You're in a, a leadership position at a company, meaning you, you probably are not worried. I'm assuming you have the, if you have the ability to start a company, you probably are not worried about where you're going to sleep. Uh, right. But that's not you know, what your fear was. Your fear was that the company would fail, not that you would starve. Exactly. And, and I would say that's not what that fear natu- natural response is designed to deal with. So there should be no fear or, or no, you, should never, saying, you should never use that to inform decision-making. I think it, you, it should, you, it should inform decision-making. It should absolutely not drive decision-making and it drove decision-making for me in certain situations. And I regret 90, I can't think of a situation in which I made a decision out of fear that I don't regret the way I handled that decision or the decision that I made. Mm-hmm. And so the third thing, I guess where I want to go with this is how do you freaking if you're scared <laughs> and you've got to make a decision and you got all these pressures, what's, how do you make decisions? How do you make a good decision when you're scared as shit? Yeah. Well, so my initial reaction to this is a bit of a cop out, which is like, maybe that's not 
the uh, point in your life where you should be preparing for this. It's not like when everything's terrifying, then you're saying, okay, what do I do? I mean, I, I think a lot of people could probably prevent, either prevent the fear in the first place or leave themselves with more options when it happens. Um, so for example, committing to really ridiculous milestones, like we don't have, we don't have deadlines at Lesson Learning Serum. This is one version of this. Um, I think that deadlines drive people to do stupid things, introduce bugs in a code and all that. Um, so if you have the deadline, I don't have a good answer for what to do, but like you could have in advance said, Hey, I've identified that that's a dumb thing to have. It's not exactly well, take, an answer. Take for example, the guy that you wish you, guy or gal who you wish you had uh, parted ways with mm-hmm. that you mentioned earlier. I mean, you got, you were scared. Yeah. Like, how could you, like, how could you go back in time and make a better decision without, if you could, how could you have removed that fear and made the right decision? Yeah, that's a good question. So first of all, I'm not saying I should have done this, but I took a huge risk hiring him and he took a huge risk. Um, Taking huge risks is a good way to end up in a situation where you're, you're afraid. So one option would have been to realize there, there, there's too much uncertainty. Let's just not even do this in the first place. That's that's hard to say, though. So I don't know, like thinking through like what I wish I would have done is set uh, earlier in the process, say, like define what it would look like for it not to work and say, if these things happen, we should both agree that this isn't working um, rather than trying to evaluate it in each individual moment. Because what kept happening is a bad thing would happen, and then I'd talk myself into saying, well, we'll make it better in this way, and they get bad again, and it get good again, and bad again. I I wish I had gone back in time and said, you know, if six months from now these three things are true, you, you should leave. It's not me firing you. It's not you quitting. It's us agreeing in advance that it's not working. I like, I really liked what you said at the beginning of that, where high risk, higher the risk, hire the opportunity for you to be scared and find mm-hmm. yourself in a situation where fear is driving you. But that doesn't mean don't take risk, right? Cause that's what we do. <laughs> yeah. So maybe it's, um, it's about how you approach high risk, high stakes, uh, bets from, from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like what you said was a little bit more structured of a solution, but maybe it's just a mentality of saying, listen, um, when I take high risks, it means that there's going to be failure and I have to be con- like, that's, I'm not scared of like, I guess that just comes with the territory. Being a leader yeah. is high risk. Yeah. Although it is different. So I was much more comfortable taking risk when it was just my co-founder and I, because, you know, we were both prepared. We, first of all, we both accepted the risk. And second of all, we had great safety nets. So if something went wrong, no problem. As soon as we started hiring people who were counting on us, A, the fear went up and B, the the risk tolerance went down, which is probably healthy. It's healthy to say, you know what, if it were just me, I'd be, you know, cutting it right on the edge of like constantly almost going out of business to grow faster. But now there's another person here. We're going to have a little more money in the bank. We're going to move a little slower. So that's one thing you can do to mitigate the the fear, I guess. So what if you're making that decision? This is getting a little bit uh, ridiculous, but in that situation, are you making a decision not to grow out of fear? Uh, I would say out of fear of fear. It's like I don't, I don't want to be constantly uh, feeling like everything might fall apart, and so we've made the decision. Like I've told you before, we're not calling ourselves a small business instead of a startup um, mm-hmm. because that gives us permission to say. 
you know, yeah, we're going to trade off a little bit of growth for a little bit of stability. I, 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 I like what you just said. I'm scared of being scared. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm a bad person when I'm scared. I think that's, that's what I'm scared of too. I'm scared of being scared. So it's really, it's really trying to create situations where you minimize your own fear. And then there's going to be situations where you do have to deal with it. Number one, minimize those times. And two, I guess I guess what I'm trying to get to is when you find yourself in that situation, I guess it's, uh, you know, my mom used to tell me there's a tw- something called the 24 hour rule. You got to get, you got to figure out how to get out of that f- state of fear and think rationally. I don't, I, do you know of any frameworks for decision-making like that? No, I, I don't know of any frameworks. Like while we've been talking, I've, I've been thinking about my own experiences. So I have, I can speculate on that, but I, I don't know of any, like someone has kind of proposed a solution to this. The only one that comes to mind for me is Jeff Bezos. He has a, a concept called the regret minimization framework. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if he coined it or not, but logically, if if fear causes me to regret, the the things I regret the most are the things that are I, I've decided to do or done based out of fear. Then, if I could figure out how to make decisions while minimizing regret, it could offset that fear. So I can kind of see. I don't. I don't know a ton about the framework, uh, but that mm-hmm. the, that that comes to mind as something I should look. I should look into um, as a way to maybe combat it. First of all, avoid situations where you're scared as a leader because that makes you a bad leader, yeah. <laughs> or it, puts, it sets you up to be a bad leader. And then right. you know, have have frameworks in place to. Um, you know, if if they exist out there to help you make a good decision when you're scared. Um, and it sounds like this regret minimization framework, actually, I need to look into it. I just read about it a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It could be a good framework for this. Yeah. Well, let me know if, if you do look into that, what, what it says. I'm, I'm just, uh, I know we need to wrap it up here, but like, I'm thinking on my end, the situations where I've done well with fear are ones where I was really excited. Um, there's like fear that, you know, you said earlier, you're much more interested in user experience than money. So you might be more interested in taking on a high pressure, high fear situation that is taking a big shot at making the user experience great versus taking a big shot at making the money great. Um, so maybe that's one way you can do it is say, am I excited about this? Is this exhilarating or am I just cowering at this? Yeah, it comes down to who you are and what you value. If you're mm-hmm. doing things that you value, I'm ta- I'm really into bet big on being <laughs> being me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and doubling down on you know being uh, situations that allow me to be even more me. Yeah, it's the situations where I'm being asked to be someone I don't want to be. Not that mm-hmm. I shouldn't be. Like, there's the, I, I'm not saying don't become a better person. Right. I'm I'm saying don't become a worse person. In your own eyes, because that sucks. <laughs> yeah. So situation, yeah, putting a situation in place where you, I, I'm thinking this all comes back to culture and putting yourself in a situation where the people around you share your values and allow you to make decisions together or as a, as a leader to put yourself in a situation to be a, the best leader you can be. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you think everyone should bootstrap. That's interesting. Um. <laughs> well, I, I know I don't actually. I, actually I, I know think, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I think that the right investor, you know, value, like if yeah, you yeah, have the right yeah. investor. Absolutely. 
Cool. Uh, we should probably wrap this up. This ended up not being about imposter syndrome, but I think it was interesting nonetheless. <laughs> uh, fear, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, well, uh, until next week, uh, you can find our show notes at sustainablestartups.transistor.fm. That will only probably be true for like a week or two, but that's where they are right now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>